On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for the vacationing Rick Zamperin this week. We're talking about the Olympics. We have gold. And I say we because, of course, we did it, right? Well, we're going to talk about why this matters so much to us because it does. We will be chatting about the trucker convoy. We're going to be chatting about the bill that is in front of the House of Commons or getting there about internet cleansing which some people are saying is more like freedom removal, but we'll talk about that one. We're talking about the new conservative leadership candidate, Pierre Polyev, who says he's running for prime minister. What about the Olympics? What about holding the Olympics? What about the human rights violations that people say China is doing? We're going to speak to someone who's been very much against this for a while now. And Hamilton is very, very sexy. We will tell you how and why. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Do you intend to watch the Winter Olympics or will you refrain as a protest against China's human rights record? We asked the question because last week another poll was done showing that nearly half of Canadians say they will not be watching. And the reason is mostly because of China's human rights record. So will you be tuning in to watch? Or will you be saying, nope, not doing it? And we're going to be talking to someone later in the show who has pushed very hard for this very thing. Uh, We'll get to that later. First, though, let's stick with the sports part of of this for a few minutes. Sean Fitzgerald, managing editor of The Athletic, joins us. Sean, how are you this morning? I'm doing well. How are you doing, sir? I could not be better, which is really saying something at 620 in the morning. You know, because I, you know, it usually takes about eight cups of coffee to get me on. For some reason, I'm up and it's a Monday. It's 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 all good. It's good. Well, you know, it's, Maybe it's, it's 7.20 p.m. in Beijing. So there's really no excuse to sound groggy or tired. That's true. Yeah, it really is 7.20. That's, well, that's the clock I'm going on. And Canada has a gold medal, which, you know, somehow, you know, even though we say we, when we celebrate, hey, we got a gold medal, I'm pretty sure that I did not do anything to win this. Uh, nonetheless, we can celebrate with a Max Parrot uh, or Parrot. Um, of uh, Quebec, one in slope style. Um, Mark McMorris took the bronze in that same thing. You explain. I mean, this is fantastic. Why do we say we, why does this make us feel good when we wake up in the morning and we hear that we've got a gold medal? Well, I mean, because, I mean, the flag is the obvious and shortest answer. Um, But because I think the thing about the Olympics is, and you alluded to it, uh, throwing it off the top about what's coming up, you know, in a little bit about will you or will you not watch these games? The Olympics are the greatest thing on earth run by the worst. Do you know what I mean? Like (laughs) the stars, well, the stars and are the kids. The kids are the ones who are out there on the field, you know, in the summer out there on the snow, on the ice right now. Um, And they are the ones that you invest in. They are the ones whose stories you finally learn. They are the ones that, you know, they, they trained in a barn or, you know, because of COVID, they lifted bales of hay instead of weights. Like, you know, all of these things inherently make you want to root for somebody to succeed. And, you know, even in a year like this, where it seems like we had an Olympics, you know, 26 minutes ago in Tokyo. Um, <laughs> and this one's like literally 13 hours ahead of us right now. Um, you can still get invested in all of that. So, yeah, I mean, their triumphs are our triumphs. And that is that is the great dopamine pull of the Olympic Games. And I'll say this for for what for this gold medal in particular. Uh, I joke, and everyone else does too. It's not unique that the NBC and more recently CBC and when CTV was doing it, they got dragged into this. NBC perfected this shtick where every Olympian 
had overcome being hit by a bus while their mother was suffering from lupus and their sister lost a leg. And I mean, every there's never been on NBC an Olympian who did not have the most unbelievable obstacles to overcome to get there. Nobody just had a healthy pursuit of a medal. All right. It always had to be some sort of soap opera. However, Max Perot, I mean, he, this, this guy, this is legit. This is a guy who you really can tell that story and not feel kind of dirty by doing it like you're pulling something over on someone this guy's this guy just recovered from cancer yeah no and that's the thing i mean we all like to make fun of nbc one because it's very very easy and two i mean i i I try to watch nbc a couple of hours every olympics and it it makes me want to sort of hit myself (laughs) in the face with a hammer just so i can feel something again because not because of the narrative structure just because they refuse to show live sports and um they also refuse to show anybody who's not american um but i digress um yeah no i mean you mentioned the hyperbole right the the, the huge family history, the, the the drama, all of that stuff. But in a way, it really is a reflection of all of us that, I mean, yeah, you might not have you know, on a national, you know, magnified scale of, you know, some of the challenges that these athletes have to overcome, but everybody, everybody listening, everybody in this conversation, everybody who might listen to this um, has faced adversity. I mean, you know, welcome to the human condition. Um, overcoming that, is also sort of what makes us human. And, you know, when looking at it in others who are succeeding on an international stage, it's inspiring. It makes you feel good. So, yeah, that's, again, the huge draw of these Olympics. And, yeah, I mean, for Max Parrott, that's that's one of the great stories of today, one that we'll be talking about for the next few days. Um, On top of, you know, being in a sport where, you know, I have two young kids and they see it and, you know, they're just absolutely in awe. Of, of what these athletes can do um, in the field of competition. Yes, and which dad is immediately saying, yes, but you're not doing this because you could kill yourself if you do Oh, no, because... they're very pragmatic. They're absolutely, no, we've actually <laughs> we've played the game, and maybe you've played it at home. But when you really think back to it, you know, how many winter Olympic sports would you be comfortable even trying? Sure, I mean, yeah, hockey's one, sure. But sure. You know, maybe speed skating. Skiing, I've skied. Sure, but like, would you would you want to go out on that like forty five k cross country ski? Would you would you want to try the ski jump? Would you want to go down the moguls no, and end up with your no. with your MCL, LCL, and and uh, PCL on one side of the mountain and your meniscus on the other? Um, no, there's a lot of Watch. sports at the Winter Olympics where like I wouldn't try that, not even on a bet. There's a reason they call it skeleton and i don't know if it's if it's supposed to just be terrifying but I, as a kid i remember watching horst bulau and thinking that man may be the most touched person in canada it turns out he was pretty good and he didn't really hurt himself but nonetheless it, it always looked goofy um, as a as a risk thing all right I, we only have a minute or two left and I, I have to ask you about this because people were probably if you're up now because it's early it means you were probably in bed before the canada russia women's hockey game last night Sean, I, look, so what ends up happening is there's a delay in the game because six Russian players who had earlier tested positive for COVID didn't get their test back in time. So they're not really sure what they're going to do. And the players end up having to play the game with masks on. And it, of course, this has to be the Russian team and there has to be controversy around the Russian team. How is it that it seems that in every Olympics, the IOC bends over backwards to make Russia not unhappy? Because the easy thing here would be to say, your six players who haven't got their test back, who were previously caught positive, they can't play. 
And yet here we are, you're not even allowed to have a Russian team, but they still let the Russian athletes in. How explain this just seems lunacy to me. Well, I mean, don't forget the opening ceremony too, how the Russian Olympic Committee athletes, again, not Russian, Russian Olympic Committee athletes marched in to the stadium, uh, the bird's nest, and uh, they had the literal Russian flag on their sleeve uh, sewn in. Um, that's not supposed to happen. The, the whole point of this slap on the wrist is that there is no mention of, of Russia or Russian athletes or Russian uh, in, you know, flags, but, but there they are. No, it, it's part of the whole thing of you know, what we said earlier, that the Olympics are the best, run by the worst and this is the example of of the latter um yeah there is no meaningful punishment there is no uh, meaningful justice there uh for the reasons uh, that would probably be subject of a book and maybe an international investigation uh i don't think we're going to solve that at 6 27 a.m on a monday morning in february more than likely not however it is uh canada won by the way six to one to remain undefeated so uh so at least there's that although man playing a hockey game with a n95 mask on sounds entirely uncomfortable anyway you know they make some of the kids do it some of the kids have to play Uh, hockey with masks on right now yeah you'd like to think it wouldn't be at this level anyway sean fitzgerald from the athletic really appreciate you taking time this morning sean thanks for doing this thanks for having me have a great week you're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You would have been um, not really paying attention to what was going on in the world if you didn't notice uh, what's been happening in Ottawa for the past number of days with the truckers. And then on the weekend, well, it wasn't just Ottawa. It was here in Hamilton, Toronto, Thunder Bay, Waterloo, Sudbury, London, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, Victoria, Regina, Fredericton, Quebec City, Winnipeg, and pretty much every little town in between suddenly had protests pop up. I want to bring in Sabrina Nanji. She is the founder of the Queen's Park Observer. Uh, Sabrina, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Yes, happy Monday indeed. So these things usually, when you have a big rally somewhere like we saw in Ottawa, you would think that often, or at least what we see often is that kind of, you know, it all builds up and that big rally, then it sort of lances the boil and everyone gets it out of their system. And then things sort of peter out. This one seems to be spreading and getting bigger, at least broader rather than dying out. Yeah. um, I mean, like you said, we've seen the Ottawa protest uh, roll out uh, to to other cities. You know, they sort of descended around Queen's Park this weekend. Uh, There were a lot of concerns about that. Um, You know, the the political fray is is blowing up here, too. We had Premier Doug Ford. Um, You know, his language has changed quite a bit over the last week. He's been facing criticism after what he told um, Rick Zamperin on on this station not too long ago, you know, saying "God bless those protesters." He supports the truckers. Um, his language has since evolved on that, as we've seen the protests kind of devolve, and you know, uh, it has sort of become this um, channel for you know all frustrations over the pandemic. It, it's kind of uh, evolved from from that, and so now we have the premier, you know, calling this an occupation. Um, we had. The Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones, you know, kind of call out Ottawa's uh, handling on this, at least at the local level, you know, um, making a pointed statement yesterday, you know, congratulating Toronto Police, Toronto City Hall for for keeping folks safe. Uh, You know, maybe there were some lessons there for Toronto in how this all went down in Ottawa. But, you know, we've seen 
Ottawa police, they, they hired Navigator, you know, that, that quintessential political crisis communications group to kind of help them with the public messaging on this, um, pointed remarks from the Solicitor General, you know, uh, pointing out that Ottawa has the tools, uh, you know, legislatively speaking to kind of handle this on their own. And now we've got Mayor Jim Watson uh, declaring a state of emergency. So this really doesn't feel like it's going to end anytime soon. Before we get to the broader thing, let me go to Ottawa for just a second, because I've been very puzzled by this. You would think that of all the cities in the country, Ottawa would be the one most prepared for large protests, most prepared for this kind of thing, because it's the seat of government. And I know they don't have a lot like this, but I'm shocked that they have seemed so ill-prepared to handle something like this. Well, I think when, you know, someone hires a navigator, there's uh there there might be the assumption from from the rest of us in the public and those of us, you know, uh navigator is kind of this uh the the go-to firm when you're, you know, not doing so hot in, in the public's eye. And certainly, you know, Ottawa police, the mayor, that they're facing tons of criticism right now, and especially not only from the public, but we're kind of seeing this drama play out politically too. Uh when you have the solicitor general saying, you know, we're not going to direct the police, but Ottawa, you have all these tools. We've given you everything you need. Um, you know, they haven't formally asked uh, for further supports from the province. Uh, so I, I think for sure we're starting to see the Ford government distance themselves from Ottawa in this case. I think there's going to be a lot of questions about how this is being handled. Um, I think one thing that outraged folks on, on social media, at least this weekend, was a, a tweet from Ottawa police saying, you know, anyone who's bringing supplies to the protesters, uh, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're not going to be able to do that. And they're going to enforce that now, but this is coming like a week after these guys have been camped out there. Um, you know, I'm really feeling for, for the, the citizens there, the ones who are having to deal with this incessant honk. Um, you know, it, it could have gotten a lot worse for Toronto. We know that, you know, around Queen's Park, there were barricades set up. You know, there were tractors and trucks down there making noise. Um, and, and the thing is, is this got kind of dangerous, especially in Toronto and around Queen's Park, because we know that, that that's Hospital Row. There's sick kids, Princess Margaret, you know, uh, newborn babies, cancer patients, you know, that, that could possibly be having to deal with this noise, you know, blocking off access to healthcare. And, and we did hear some of that happened a little bit, you know, um, health care workers being told, you know, not to go into work in their scrubs, you know, for fear of being harassed. So it's it's a very fine line here, like what's happening between protest and, you know, occupation as the premier and police are now calling it. I know that um, you cover Queen's Park, hence the, hence the name of your uh, Queen's Park Observer. So, um, but I want to ask you about federal for just one second, because I, I do wonder if when the prime minister almost right off the bat came out and called all the participants fringe and threw out racists and things like that, did that, did that make it worse? Could it have been a slight bit more conciliatory? Cause it looks like there's already anger and then you come out and you sort of call everybody a Yahoo. And it seems like that just made everybody dig into their position more. And I'm not saying the prime minister had to say, look, I agree with all of you, but it seems as though it was, it was, almost antagonizing in the tone. Well, you know, as a political nerd, I, I, it's kind of fascinating to be watching some of these political decisions um, rolling out in, in real time because we're, we're seeing all these politicians provincially, federally trying to walk this seemingly almost impossible line. There's, there's no doubt that, you know, people are frustrated. Like this protest has become um, a channel for everyone's frustrations on, on the pandemic. You know, I, I'm frustrated too. Uh, 
you know, I, I believe in vaccinations and all that, but you know, it, it's palpable and this has become a, a venue for everyone to kind of vent. We've been dealing with this for two years. So I don't think you can completely write this off, but you know, then we have the conservatives, you know, we saw Aaron O'Toole ousted federally last week. Uh, you know, the, there were horns honking in Ottawa. Uh, protesters were happy about that. Now we're getting a lot of conservative MPs trying to have it both ways. And, and we did see Aaron O'Toole, you know, who kind of brought the party more towards the center uh, you know, he kind of said that some of his final statements, his final words are, you know, we can choose which way this party is going to go. And obviously, uh, you know, conservatives had their say on that. And and so now I think there's sort of this this fear. Um, and even Premier Doug Ford has been criticized, you know, by his op- his political rival saying that he's emboldened them. Uh, you know, his, his stance has kind of changed. He's taken a bit more of a harsher tone. But, you know, that came after a few days. So th- there might be some political capital to gain here. But I think at the end of the day, you know, uh, looking at our vaccination numbers, uh, you know, some of the backlash that's coming, you know, bad optics from from this protest. I think it's a very fine line for politicians to walk um, uh, and it absolutely. might end up backfiring. Sabrina Nanji, founder of the Queen's Park Observer. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You may recall that before the last election, last federal election, uh, the government had a bill that it was working on that would, in theory, cleanse the internet of hate. That was the goal. Um, the trouble was many of the experts who looked at this bill said that what it was really going to do is cleanse the internet of free speech. So now the government's back and they're taking another crack at this one, trying to make it a little bit better and make it a little bit cleaner and all the rest of the stuff. Is it better? Will it work better? Dr. Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and is a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. He joins us now. Dr. Geist, thank you for this today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So I think an awful lot of people support the concept of getting rid of bullying or hateful stuff online. But I'm not sure that those same people, many of them believe that either the bureaucracy or the government or even massive corporations are the ones to do it. I don't know who else would do it, but I don't know they have a lot of confidence in those groups to handle such a task. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, certainly there's a desire, I think, for some amount of regulation for for certain kinds of, of harmful content. But I think many are, are are unsure as to who is best situated to deal with some of those issues. You're right. You know, handing a lot of power over to the CRTC, for example, I don't think for a lot of people inspires much confidence. But I should note that you know the government itself is is trying to figure out what's even the best legislative mechanism to deal with some of these issues. So the the bill that was effectively reintroduced last week, what used to be Bill C-10, it's now Bill C-11, really doesn't deal with misinformation or harmful content at all. That's not its goal. It's more of a broadcast-type bill that deals mm. with large streamers. The online harms issues is, a, is another issue that the government is looking at as well. Well, on that one, I mean, and I think that one more than anything is what what really scares people and what concerns them. And, and the question there is like, who would define that? Who would define hate? Could it be used as a weapon if it was a political thing? Like, there's so many questions around that that don't really have good answers. I think that's true, you know, and, and you know, in some ways, it's it's an it's an I find it's an odd place for the government to find itself in on this issue because if you're talking about 
large streaming services, the Netflixes or Disney's or Spotify's of the world. I don't know that that's all that controversial. I think I think there's a, a reasonable debate, and actually there could be a really strong debate as to whether or not we should be treating those streaming services in precisely the same way as we treat a large broadcaster. I think there are some significant differences. There's even debate about the state of the sector itself, where there's been record amounts of investment in film and television production, much of it funded by these foreign services. So I'm not even sure that there's a a great case to be made for the need to do this. But even if you say that, you know what, we want to ensure there's this so-called level playing field and we want to bring them into the system, those kinds of large curated services that function more like a broadcaster are just completely different from the user-generated content world where you're talking about millions of Canadians expressing themselves in many different ways. And the idea that they would want to loop all of that together under the same banner and say that all of this stuff, all of that content is a program potentially subject to regulation by the CRTC just doesn't make any sense. Right. So Sally, who is at home making a YouTube video, would suddenly be seen as the same as, as you say, any of the big broadcasters. And what she put out would theoretically be under the same rules and regulations. Again, it seems, I don't know, is the word simplistic or ludicrous or off? I mean, I don't know what it is, but it it seems like it doesn't make any sense to put those two things in the same category. I don't think it does. In fact, there, there's really no other country in the world that tries to do it. Uh, the European Union, for example, has some of, some, of the, some of the most advanced rules in this area. They've been debating these issues for a very long time, have had pretty significant rules in place for some time. And they make a clear distinction between the large curated services and user-generated content. Now, the government will respond by saying, you know, Sally doesn't have anything to worry about. If it's a non-commercial YouTube video, it's not going to be covered by these rules. But let's recognize that their starting point is that all of this content is a program that's subject to regulation, and then it's to the government to decide what gets excluded and what doesn't. And so they've excluded more content this time than they did in the last bill that sparked all of that controversy, but they haven't excluded it all. There's a fair, there's, there's, I think, an enormous amount of uncertainty associated with what's included and what isn't. And so that ultimately leaves us with, with legislation that I think still has some of the same causes for concern. But let's go back to that, what you just said then, if it's not commercial, so you're not eligible or you're not under this umbrella if it's not commercial, but as I understand how YouTube or others work, uh, you put together a video that suddenly catches traction and you get 10 million views. You may not even have known you were going to get 10 million views. YouTube pays you. So even without intending to be commercial, you may have only thought 50 people were going to see it. You're now commercial. So you could be changing the definition of what you are after you've already produced it. Yes, no, the, well, it, it's an interesting question as to where that dividing line is. It's not clear at all. In fact, I think it, it's even blurrier than, than your question suggests. The, the, leg- the way the government has drafted this legislation is to cover anything that has either direct or indirect commercial benefits is potentially included within this. So it's not even that you necessarily have to start generating, let's say, ad revenue as you generate millions of views. You get all those views and suddenly someone now offers you a sponsorship or a chance to give a speech or who knows, any number of different possibilities. And suddenly now you're in the basket of indirect commercial benefits. And as the way the CRTC has been, uh, been tasked with crafting those regulations, that opens the door to the possibility of being treated like a program subject to regulation.
here's the part of this that I've never understood from the beginning when they've been trying to come up with this bill. We do have hate laws in this country, hate speech laws in this country. Why not simply apply them to what's posted online? Why do we need to double up and have new hate laws for what's online? Why can we not say if you post a YouTube video calling for the return of the Aryan race and Nazism, why could we not just say you fall under the laws that exist? Well, I think we could and we do. Let's recognize again, this isn't dealing with those hate-related issues. This actually isn't designed to deal with it. This wants to say that that those videos, are, frankly, any video in theory is subject to regulation uh, by the CRTC, the potential payments, the discoverability requirements. Once you get into the questions about um, so-called illegal speech, that's a separate issue. The government actually did release a report last week on its consultation on online harms, and hate was, was part of that. And it's worth noting that the government admits that, in fact, its proposed approach attracted near-universal criticism. Uh, and on that issue, they say that they're going to go back to the drawing board a little bit. They're going to um, hmm. pump the brakes and sort of rethink some of their legislative approaches. But uh, that's in stark contrast to their approach on broadcast, which did as, as we know, attract all of this criticism, and yet their approach is to move as quickly as possible on it. It is. Uh, well, we'll be watching this one, but I mean, it, basically you and every other expert that I've seen talk about this has concerns. I just don't even know if it's possible to have a, a good bill in this. Well, we're, we're going to find out, I suppose. Uh, Dr. Michael Geist, I really appreciate the time, as always, today. Thank you for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The presumptive favorite to win the conservative leadership. You know that job is open now. Aaron O'Toole voted down last week. Uh, So the guy who everybody was looking at, who almost everybody said, yeah, you know, he is by far the favorite. If, If he decides to throw his hat in the ring, that would be Pierre Polyev. Uh, He did announce that he, in fact, would be seeking the leadership of the Conservative Party, except he didn't really say that he was seeking the leadership of the Conservative Party. Let me bring in Yaroslav Baran, uh, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy. Uh, Yaroslav, thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to be here. So, uh, as I say, he didn't really, Pierre Polyev didn't really say he was seeking the leadership of the Conservative Party. What he announced was that he was seeking the to be the Prime Minister, which I thought was subtle, and yet I think that is going to play really well with the base, that he's not even bothering to just stop there. He is going directly after Justin Trudeau. That's what this is all about, take out Justin Trudeau. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a smart positioning play right off the bat. And I'll agree with you that he is probably, he's almost, he's almost certainly the guy to beat, quote unquote, as we say in politics and leadership races. Uh, he does have a strong following. He, uh, he is quick with a soundbite. He's glib. He communicates well. And um, the point you've made that he's appealing directly for the second, <laughs> for the second step, which is the prime minister's job. Uh, it's an interesting move. I'm not sure that I read that so much as, uh, I mean, I don't know if you were suggesting that it was a, a sign of arrogance that he thinks he's got it. No, no. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's it. I no, I didn't take it as that. that. I, yeah. I just thought that he was going, he was appealing to the base by saying, look, our target is not to fight with each other. Our target is to take out Justin Trudeau. That's how I interpreted Bingo. what he was saying. Bingo. That's exactly what he's doing. I think he's sending a signal that the party has got to look beyond the immediate short-term internecine warfare between factions and keep its eye on the real prize, which is replacing the Trudeau government. 
So in that sense, I think he's sending a good message. Look, I'm not here to squabble, to duke it out with my colleagues, with my friends, you know, for the, in, the, in the short term. I'm keeping my eye on a big prize. Do you think that message also, well, first of all, as you say, I mean, off the top, he was, he is by far the favorite. Do you think him jumping in early helps not have the Conservative Party get into a civil war? Because most of the other candidates might now say, what's the point of having this fight? If he's going to win anyway, let's not tear each other apart. That was clearly part of the strategic thinking. Uh, I play with that very early and very strong uh, coming out party that, that we saw from Pierre on this weekend. He wanted to get in early. He wanted to plant his, you know, his flag in the ground, let it be known, dispel the rumors, the myths, the speculation. Yes, indeed, I am running. And yes, indeed, I've got a strong following. He immediately got numerous endorsements and a broad range of endorsements from former powerhouse cabinet ministers to some of the best and most talented up-and-comers within uh, within the Conservative caucus to, um, you know, parts of you know, people who are members of Aaron O'Toole's inner circle. So that was a, it was a really smart way of demonstrating his cross-cutting support. And if you look at how many hits his YouTube video got over mm. the weekend, it was just off the charts. Um, I'm not, I, I don't know if Justin Bieber gets two and a half million <laughs> views within the first 24 hours, but that's what Pierre Pauliver did. So it was a very strong... Uh, opening weekend. Whatever his weaknesses are, and I'm sure the Liberals will expose them and and explore them as much as they possibly can. Uh, He is unquestionably the Conservative best positioned and best able to verbally shred the other side, correct? As a debater, there's nobody in the party better than him? I'm not sure if I would say there's nobody better than him. Um, you'd have to give me 10 minutes to think about it, but (laughs) he certainly is a strong communicator and he's a strong debater. He's a take no prisoners. Don't ever apologize. Um, don't ever cede any ground kind of communicator. He reminds me in fact, in his style, you remember Deborah Gray, she was deputy leader under Preston Manning, uh, with the reform party. She had a very similar style, kind of happy warrior, but don't ever cede any ground and don't use their language. Use your own language. Keep control of the frame of the discussion. And frankly, also, in some respects, in many respects, Pierre is very similar to Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau has this, you know, he has this um, glib, communications-oriented, uh, uh, natural charisma with his own flock that, that gets his own support, you know, uh, all riled up, but also drives the other side crazy. Pierre has exactly those same attributes. So will that then score points outside the party faithful? Because you need that. Yeah, of course you do. And the real test is how he performs during this leadership uh, campaign. Because many people are going to come into this thinking, oh yeah, I know Pierre, he's the guy who's, uh, you know, really uh, really effective in the house of commons really partisan etc if you really want to keep to in fact keep your eye on the big prize you need to expand your appeal beyond the party base to people who don't vote conservative have never even considered voting conservative and you want them looking at you a, a second time or, or as, as Aaron O'Toole said uh, a year ago this isn't your your grandpa's party anymore i want people to look at look at me again for the first time that's the approach you need to take so he's going to have to tweak his communication style a little bit so that he comes across as something more 
than simply a very partisan, albeit very capable, but a very partisan person. And I think he was pretty effective at doing that. If you if you look at his uh, at his opening weekend video, his sort of appeal to the nation, um, it was clear that he was trying to strike that balance. And I think he did it pretty well. And we, we only have 20 seconds here, but I, I think the other thing that maybe he has going for him, if there is something, and others may disagree, uh, a guy born in the West represents an Ontario riding for, I think, seven elections and speaks fluent French and has a French name. That covers an awful lot of the bases you might want. Yeah, the only thing missing is that I don't know that he's ever run a business uh, on the East Coast, but <laughs> um, you know, that would be the one missing ingredient, or maybe... Or, or maybe if he went surfing with uh, with Trudeau and Tofino once in a while, he'd be truly pan Canadian. <laughs> but you're right; uh, it's uh, having that kind of pan Canadian uh, a way for people to identify with you is is important. Yaroslav Baran, a managing principal of Earnscliff Strat Strategic, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. It was good to be here. Thanks. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Aladdin Tatong is a Tibetan-Canadian political activist. She's co-founder and director of the Tibet Action Institute. She has been an outspoken critic of the Beijing Games for some time now. She joins us now. Aladdin, thanks for taking the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. So I, I was, uh, now I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to. Uh, you were, sure. you were, um, seething if I can interpret what your tweets were saying uh, at the mm -hmm. opening ceremonies when um, when China chose a Uyghur to light the cauldron. Why was this so outrage, such an outrage to you? Yeah, I mean, at the very moment that that spectacle was taking place, uh, more than a million Uyghurs are locked up in internment camps. The Canadian House of Commons has recognized this along with the U.S., the U.K., other governments as genocide and crimes against humanity. You know, they faced forced abortion, sterilization, just the most unbelievable, inhumane and degrading treatment. And here they were doing exactly what we knew they would do, which is use the Olympic Games to try to legitimize their crime and say, look, here's a Uyghur person who's happy and prospering and an Olympic athlete in our, in our games. I mean, it was just sick. Couldn't, though, uh, let me play devil's advocate for a second, couldn't this be a sign that they are softening and showing that they're open to allowing those people to thrive? No, I mean, if you think of authoritarian regimes, they're really good at putting on big spectacles like this and training people without human rights to be athletes and to compete at the top level of sport. There's no better training system than one where you're deprived of rights and freedom and you're made to perform. And that's what they do with Tibetans, as with Uyghurs, with people they consider so-called minorities of China. They trot them out at the appropriate moment to sing and dance for the camera, to perform. And the reality is so far from that happy picture that they show. I mean, the, the Internet is, the, is rife with Chinese government propaganda on Tibet. But the reality in Tibet from any Tibetan who manages to escape or who courageously sends information out, will tell you that far from the happy pictures you see in their state-sponsored propaganda, Tibetans are suffered, suffering under crushing repression. And it just, you know, this is what they're good at. What the Chinese government is good at is this kind of show. I know, uh, and anyone who followed you on Twitter or has talked to you knows that you had wanted a boycott of these games. Mm -hmm. Fail not these games. First, first of all, not these games at all. Then a boycott when they were granted. Uh, failing that, a media boycott. N none of those things happened. Yeah. You can't, though, be surprised that none of those things happened. 
No, unfortunately, this is the way the world has gone, you know, in regards with relations with the People's Republic of China for far too long. What we were very void and, um, you know, happy about on a, a level that the very minimum happened, which should, which was a diplomatic boycott. So, you know, in 2008, when Tibet was being crushed after uprising and protest in Tibet leading up to those 08 games, 80 world leaders were there in Beijing for the opening ceremonies of their first Olympic Games. And that was really a devastating blow for Tibetans, what that message, what it sent to Tibetans inside Tibet who were being um, brutally repressed at that time. At least, at the very least this time, we have numerous governments um, missing. And in fact, the only, if you look at the guest list, you know, Putin's their big star, um, it's authoritarians and autocrats, and then a couple of senior UN diplomats, uh, Tedros from the WHO and Antonio Guterres, who is the Secretary General of the UN. And I really think that's a terrible signal, what we have known for a long time now, that the senior diplomats at the UN are totally in with the Chinese government beyond what is uh, good or healthy for our international community and the upholding of, you know, human rights and global values. Latin, it becomes complicated. Um, look, this is a very serious issue. On the other hand, and not to take away the seriousness, we also we, we also honor the athletes who are great and they've put their lives into sacrificing to get here and to be the best in the world and to try and, you know, bring, it sounds ridiculous, when I say it like this, but it sounds cliche, but bring honor to their country or whatever. But we, we do respect and honor what they do. Is there a way, even with these Olympics and with the broadcast that's going on, is there a way to celebrate the athletes without celebrating the host? Yeah, I think it's a travesty what, what we, you know, even we are, you know, the Canadian National Olympic Committee, the International Olympic Committee, just, you know, all of these representative sports bodies by sending the, by choosing China for these games and sending the athletes there, they've really made a huge mistake and they've put the athletes in a terrible position. That we absolutely, I absolutely recognize. I think China's trying to enforce a silence on them right now to scare and intimidate them from even speaking out in the simplest peaceful ways their political conscience their 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 you know to say that they support tibetans that they believe you know um human rights violations at the scale that we're seeing are are unacceptable they've all sort of been from what we can tell scared into silence and i think the international olympic community and the national olympic committees the um the corporate sponsors they all have a responsibility right now to tell those athletes you are protected we will take care of you. Of course, you have your right to free speech. That doesn't change country to country. That we don't believe. We believe. But do you think? And Laden, sorry, we have fifth, we have fifteen mm-hmm. seconds. But do you think anybody will? Do you think there's an athlete out there who is going to be bold enough to actually stand up and say something? Yeah, I think we will see athletes speak. I'm not sure that we'll see the podium type protests that we would hope for on some level, but I believe we'll see and hear them speak. I think Canadian athletes did not participate in the opening ceremonies in the numbers that they would have in a normal games. And I don't think that was a coincidence. I know from Tibetan activists, students who are free Tibet members, they were reaching out to educate Canadian athletes and others about the human rights situation. And an opening ceremonies boycott was an action that many athletes were considering. I think we'll hear uh, soon, whether that was what they were doing when they didn't attend the opening ceremony. That is Ladin Taitong. She is an activist, a Tibetan-Canadian political activist, outspoken critic of the Beijing Games. Really appreciate you taking some time this morning. Thank you.
Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Good morning, Hamilton. Or should I say, good morning, sexy Hamilton. Because, yes, you are, we are, apparently, very sexy in this city. Like, among the sexiest in Canada. Uh Uh-huh. A list compiled by Pink Cherry has told us that we are just oozing sexy in this town. Uh, Haven't heard of Pink Cherry? Well, or maybe unwilling to admit to the person you're eating cornflakes with right now that you're familiar with them. It's a company that sells um, adult products. Anyway, uh, we came eighth this year in Canada. We are the eighth sexiest city in all of Canada after Calgary, Surrey, BC, Ottawa, Winnipeg, Edmonton, London, and Brampton. I want to bring in Amanda Rosignol, Director of Sales and Marketing for Pink Cherry, who gave us our sexy quotient approval. Hi. Is that how we're going to describe it, Amanda? <laughs> how are you today? I'm good. How, how are Amanda? You? I'm fan. Well, listen, I'm, I'm feeling very sexy all of a sudden. How, how, how do we gauge this? How do we measure that Hamilton is just this sexy? For sure. So we measure or rate all of our Canadian cities according to consumer purchases and behaviors for last year. So everything from the purchase history to the searches that we're seeing on the site, we compile all of that data and then analyze it and create the list of 294 cities. And we came eight. That's, that's we're, we're, we're impressive. So this is based on uh, a lot of it on dollars spent on adult goods. Do we know how much Hamiltonians spent on such things? We do have that data, but it's not something that we necessarily share, but they're obviously up there if they, if they came in eighth place. Have we always been near the top of this list? Uh, you've definitely been in the top 10 before, but um, yes, you've, it's not, uh, you've definitely moved up from last, from last year. Well, I mean, I, I suppose that can't be a bad thing. And in, 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 is this a COVID thing then? Are we are we suspecting that Hamiltonians were just, you know, getting more busy during COVID because there wasn't as much stuff to do? Or how do we interpret that? For sure. We've definitely seen a huge bump due to COVID over the past few years of people really just wanting to take care of themselves and their wellness and well-being. And um, definitely we saw a bump with that. Um, I have some key flirty facts about Hamilton, if you wanted to to know okay. those. Okay, okay. Keeping there. in mind it's 8.54 in the morning. <laughs> yes. Um, they definitely, favorite flavors of things are strawberry. So that's, there's a sweet tooth in Hamilton. Okay. So far, that's pretty PG. All right, let's keep going. Yes. <laughs> um, there's a bedroom fantasy. Is that something we can talk about? Well, I, I suppose so. Alicia's got her finger on the sensor button in case we get too sexy, but sure, go ahead. Uh, their favorite fantasy is schoolgirl. Oh, well, okay. All right. Um, I, I did see on the, the story on the, on the release about this, that, um, that we are, that Hamilton has purchased a lot of, um, I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about this stuff on the air, but who knows? Uh, but we've, we spent a lot of money on vibrators and fantasy dolls. And I, as I was thinking about that, I thought, wait a second, does that make us sexy or does that make us lonely? 
No, I mean, there is many toys that can be shared with a couple or a partner. And actually one of the top five within Hamilton was our We Vibe Couples Vibrator, which is just a great choice for anyone, even dating long distance, as there's an app you can install on your phone or device and control the toy from basically anywhere. So it's a really, it was a kind of key insight that maybe some people are dating or wanting couple toys and, and maybe you're not um, in the same city. Mm. Any any of the deliveries postmarked to the 900 CHML address? <laughs> that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we, um, what is the, do we know? Okay. So Hamilton is eighth as far as sexiest city in Canada. Do we know what is the least sexy city in Canada? Are you allowed to say what is the most unsexy city? Um, I don't have that on me at the moment, but we definitely have that available <laughs> on the site at pinkcherry.ca. All right. Well, there's other things. So we're talking about sexiest cities and that's a uh, 300,000 population or over. You also do the sexiest towns. And I got to say, most are in BC. So whatever BC is doing, I guess, good for them. <laughs> uh, I must say, I was surprised to find Pembroke at number two on sexiest towns because I have family from that area. And I can't say that I would have guessed that was number two, but hey, I guess, um, you know, sexy is what sexy does. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That is, uh, there is good news for anybody in Hamilton. Go to work this morning with a spring in your step, knowing that we are just far too sexy for our own good. Uh, Amanda Rosenyall from Pink Cherry, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.